it ain't. Oh, knives. Can I use? I don't use. I don't use the knife with here. It's like, like this is cool. One. Uh, uh, So if you've been listening to this show, you know that I'm obsessed with making movies. You know that I am obsessed with art and with comic books. But uh, more than anything, judging by my, my, my last step on the scale, I'm obsessed with food. I'm obsessed with good food. I'm obsessed with making food. Uh, and I've always sort of drawn the parallel in my personal life uh, to food and directing, to being a cook and being a director. Uh, because it's the same thing, man. Like, making a great meal is like making a great movie. You're manipulating the audience's experience. You're manipulating the emotions, using techniques that come with that industry to transport or transplant people into a memory, into a past, into a thought. Um, and uh, one of the things I love about making food is that it's a faster thing, right? It's You can decide that morning. You can wake up and say, this is a recipe I'm going to make. You can invite and curate the people around that you want to have that food with. And then you can start to design that taste palette. You can start to design the way the place is going to smell. You can design the way the place is going to look. Um, and if, you're, if you enjoy doing it and if you're good at it, you can take people on an adventure with food. Um, and it's the same thing with movies. Just movies require a lot more shit, man. You require a lot more crew, require a lot more money, require a lot more fucking time. And so I get impatient, you know, sitting around waiting years for one of these projects to finally get into play. Um, you know, and if that was the only thing I was waiting for, then fuck, man, I'd be miserable all the time. Um, and, you know, according to my last doctor's visit, I should probably be less into doing the food stuff as much as I am but it's what makes me happy right now and uh, I've talked on this show about it all the time and uh, I have to follow through right I told you guys that I'd get a chef on the show so we did it today's episode uh, is our first chef episode and you're like okay Mike look I found you through Industry Jump I found you through Film Riot I found you through all these other podcasts we're filmmakers man why are you doing a show about food why are you doing this? Because it's the same shit, man. It's the same thing. And I've learned a lot from chefs because I've done a bunch of food pieces. I've directed chefs. I've spent time with some amazing chefs in their kitchens. And I see how they do it. I see how they delegate. I see how they run their creative space. 
and I see the stress that goes into building a restaurant and putting a restaurant out there. I mean, it's equivalent to fucking financing a feature film. You know what I mean? It's insane. The amount of stress that goes into that stuff. And then they're relying upon reviews. They're relying upon audience reactions. And then how often do you see like the turnover rate for restaurants, especially in New York and especially out here in Los Angeles, in and out. So you either have to make it, you gotta do it, you gotta make it hot and you gotta go. And then the question is, what are you what are you serving up? What are you putting on those plates? Are you uh, you giving them what they want, right? Are you Disney plusing it, right? On the menu, is it just cheeseburgers and fucking french fries and shit? Or are you telling a new story? And how do you come up with the ideas for your dishes? Where does that come from, right? Is that uh, from like old recipes that your grandmother used to cook for you? Or is it from a deeper place? Is it from a curiosity? Is it from like history, from food history? Um, There's a bunch of really cool stuff that we can get into on food in this show. And I promise you, I'm going to do it. Whether you like it or not, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do Chef's episodes. uh, And I'm excited about today's. Uh, Our first guest today is Brian Dunsmore. And he is the owner and chef at Hatchet Hall here in Los Angeles. Uh, it's a really fucking badass spot. We actually went there to to actually record the episode. He invited us over. I got to check out his kitchen. He's got two wood fire uh, wood fire grills in his back kitchen. Um, he does amazing food, uh, and the vibe of his spot. It's like the best way to describe it. It reminds me of like one of those dark little tiny speakeasy bars slash restaurants that you'd find in Manhattan. But it's out here in Los Angeles, so it's much bigger. They have a lot more room. They do um, special dining menus. They do um, uh, prefix meals for a lot of people. Um, it's really cool stuff, the stuff that these guys do. And they're, he's very much into telling stories with his food. And he's a food historian. He's a super nerd Uh into like where food comes from and how it got started here in the U.S., which is like an interesting thing. And we talk a little bit about that on the show. You know, when's the last time you thought about where barbecue comes from? Like for real, where barbecue, where the fuck does cornbread come from? And you start to examine the history of that food and you'd be surprised where it comes from. And uh, it isn't about, you know, getting too serious when you eat the food. It's just having that respect right? And understanding how it started. I always ask myself that stuff. Even if you go back and you look at the history of cured meats, right? The bane of my existence. That'll be on my fucking tombstone. This boy died from cured meats. I love cured meats, right? But how did it start, right? It was all about preserving stuff. It was making sure that that shit doesn't go bad. We don't have refrigerators. How do we fucking keep it? How do we keep it around? How do we keep it around for the off season? How do we preserve these vegetables, right? Where does strawberry jam come from? So it's it's fascinating stuff. And when you have a meal, like sitting down and having a dinner, or sitting down and having a lunch, or someone making you a sandwich, they're literally handing you history. They're handing you what they've learned. And if it's something that's been passed down for generations, like you can taste that. I always say that you can taste the mood. You can taste the emotion of the chef with every bite that you take. Like I may have the most meticulously created plate that tastes like shit because the guy making it or the woman making it is fueled with anxiety and their kitchen is a fucking nightmare. 
I've had that before. I've had people cook for me where it's just like, I don't care how good this is. My heart is beating in my chest and I don't want to fucking be here. <laughs> As opposed to having somebody, and I've said this before on the show, meticulously make me a sandwich. One of my favorite things to make for people, one of my favorite things to get is a sandwich, like a homemade sandwich. And it doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be something special and fancy. And I try to tell people that come and hang out with us because I think a lot of people can be intimidated if you're someone that likes to cook and they are concerned that they don't have the skills and they're not up to par. It's the same thing with filmmaking. You know, you have to learn by doing. You have to learn by tasting. You have to learn by giving somebody something. And then they, how do they digest it? What do they take from it? And, you know, if you want to start cooking, start with sandwiches, right? It's all about the ingredients. Where's your bread come from? What do you put in that bread? How do you, are you one of those people that actually spreads the condiments to all the corners of the bread? Are you just a quick fucking slap in the middle kind of thing, right? And, uh, you know, like I've had the best peanut butter and jelly sandwiches made for me. And they're just loaded with passion. They're loaded with love. So don't, uh, don't listen to this show and go, well, I'm not a cook or I'll never be a chef. And don't understand that because I think you're going to learn a lot of really cool stuff uh, in this episode. And we talk uh, a lot about passion and spending time and how valuable time becomes, how valuable experience becomes. Because with cooking, it isn't just about uh, being passionate about it. It's also about muscle memory. It's also about technique. And a lot of those things, uh, the only way you're ever going to get good at it is through doing it over and over and over again. And then the big question is longevity, right? Because you never really think about what kind of brutalization goes into your body when you're a line cook. I mean, I'm not just talking about the hot ovens and the hot fire and all that kind of shit, but like you're chopping every day. You're cutting through fucking pounds and pounds of root vegetables. What does that do to your wrist? What does that do to your body? And then I don't know if you guys feel this way. I feel this way when I'm on sets. If you're not wearing good sneakers, if you don't have good support, your back goes to shit. Your back goes to fucking shit. And just standing in front of a stove, standing in front of a grill, for hours upon hours. And for people that run their own restaurants, they're there 15 hours a day. I mean, these guys come home and flop and pass the fuck out. And they don't even remember going to sleep. Their body just shuts them right off. So it's a grueling job. And it's a job only for the people that really fucking want it. Right? If you want to own your own restaurant, the only way you're ever going to get there is if you put in that time and you really, really want it. And so that's what Brian and I talk about on the show. It's a great episode. And as always, I just want to thank you guys for being here. I want to thank you guys for, continually, for continuously supporting the show by going to our Instagram accounts, whether it's my account at Mike Petchy or if it's at the official podcast account, which is at In Love With The Process pod. That's In Love With The Process, P-O-D on Instagram. Um, there you've been able to see all sorts of supporting stuff for the show. I post a lot of uh, questions. I post a lot of uh, surveys up there about the, each of these episodes. Um, and goddamn, the interaction that you guys had on the porn star episode. It's like, duh, people love porn stars. <laughs> I had no idea. I had no idea how excited you guys were going to be about that show. And uh, I hope you learned something from it. 
uh, we might have got you with a little clickbait, but then uh, at the end of the day, hopefully you had a, a meaningful experience. Because I know I did, man. I had a really good time hanging out with him on that show. Logan's a really cool dude. Um, if you, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, maybe you guys are just showing up. Uh, do yourself a favor. Go to inlovewiththeprocess.com. There you can sort through episodes. I've curated them for you. So you can actually choose by subject material. If you're looking for cinematographers, let's say you're a fucking camera nerd. Let's say you're someone that wants to be a cinematographer and you just can't seem to figure out how to get out of the corporate video world. You can't seem to figure out uh, how to get on a film set. Uh, There's a whole series on cinematographers there that really sort of dig deep into that stuff. And this isn't the show where we're talking about tricks and techniques and you know, if you use this specific camera and if you use this shit, no, no, no. We actually talk about the serious stuff. We actually talk about how to get on these jobs. We actually talk about how to survive when you choose this industry. We talk about how you should interact with people. We actually get deep into um, how to find inspiration and how to curate your voice, right? Hmm. Those are some interesting topics. That's some shit you're not going to see on uh, one of those other uh, podcasts or uh, YouTube channels. So uh, stick around for that. And thank you for being here. Um, And uh, let's not delay it. Let's not delay it any further. Let's get into it, right? So you know the deal. Grab those noise-canceling headphones. Grab that charcuterie board that you prepared or that you should have prepared. You know, get some sliced meats. Maybe a little parma prosciutto on there. Maybe a little spicy capicola on there. You get a little brie, you know, a little honeycomb. A little honeycomb on there. Maybe uh, slice up some Asian pear. I fucking love Asian pear with that stuff. And get yourself uh, some horseradish. You know, a little horseradish, fucking mustard. Uh, Nice French baguette. Maybe you toast them, maybe you don't. Grab that shit. Go find a nice... If you're on the West Coast... Go sit on your front porch. If you're on the East Coast, go sit in front of the fireplace. Find a good cozy spot. Stuff your face. Sit back. Relax. And enjoy the brand new episode of The Month of the Process. So, hey, Brian, thanks for being on the show, man. Yeah, man, thanks for having me, dude. Dude, this is the first time I've been in your spot, and it's really fucking cool. Thank you. Appreciate that. We put a lot of work into it. How long has this place been open? We're coming up on five years. Nice. Yeah, five years. Still going strong. So, in L.A., that's a good feat. It's normally like a year and a half and you're out, or you're good. Yeah, yeah. Actually, maybe. I wish that was true. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, let's do a little history for people that don't know you. So, how'd you get started? How'd you become a chef? Would you Would you start? Uh, I think I probably started when I was a kid. I think everybody else knew that I was into it before I ever did. So, when I told my buddies, like after high school, I was like, "Yeah, I'm going to go to culinary school." They're like, "Yeah, of course you are." I was like expecting people to be surprised, but you know, I was like always like you know coming home drunk and with my buddies and like whipping up meals in the middle of the night and leaving the mess for my parents. Like growing up, they're pretty cool with it. I think they knew as well. You know, way way before I did. Uh, but after that, you know, I decided to go to culinary school instead of regular college. And I think that was like the main yeah. thing is like, I just didn't want to go to regular college cause I knew I didn't want to do like 
anything that you learn in regular college. Yeah, so used culinary school as an excuse to do something, and uh, I liked it. You know, it was cool, but I didn't really, really didn't love it until I kind of took a hiatus from it. I went to then I started going to regular college. I did okay at regular college, but I wasn't very into that either. And then finally, like one of my teachers was like. Brian, you're like, you're like doing fine, but you obviously don't care. Why, why don't you go get a job at five and 10? Because I was going to school in Athens, in oh. Athens, Georgia. And five and 10 was Hugh Atchison's brick and mortar restaurant, which is kind of like a southern shape at the time. I think it's like evolved through the years, but that's kind of what, that's, that's how I would right. describe it. I'm sure he would describe it differently, <laughs> but you know, all, all of us chefs have our, have, I don't know, it's hard, it's hard to put like a name on your cuisine. People have asked us for a really long time, like what it is that we do. We always had a really hard time answering it until like actually just recently, after almost five years, we're like, oh, we do like kind of plays on heritage American cuisine. It's like, boom, cool. Like, cool. Heritage American cuisine with California ingredients with a slightly southern lean, which is, you know, I'm, I grew up in the South, so it's kind of hard for me to eliminate that but we have we have kind of grown out of that phase at the restaurant so so um okay so then you started cooking was there why did you start cooking why did you originally start cooking uh i think just because of the job at five and ten so so you know my college professor was like hey what are you doing why don't you get a job at five and ten i was like hmm, maybe she's right my uh, girlfriend at the time her friend's boyfriend was a sous chef there, asked a favor. He got me a job. And after that, it was never, never, ever looked back. Nice. So I, I loved it. You know, that was a really cool restaurant to work at, too, for a first job because he was a super, super talented and like pretty loose and fluid chef who doesn't like play all the silly chef games, which I'm very much so like not into. What are the silly chef games? I don't know. Like, Chef coats and yes, chef, no chef, may I speak, chef, right? Brunois, you know, like all the it's like, like that. We're, that comes, we're, we're all just cooks. That yeah. comes from like the French training, right? Is that is that where all that stuff originates? From? Yeah, I love, I love. It's more the kind of I'm trying to think of what the word would be the like the chef etiquette and mm-hmm. like like you're something special but like i said we're all we're all just cooks like right. ev- everybody is just a cook some are better than others but we're all just cooking and running restaurants right mm-hmm. right well i mean the, the 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 title of a chef has changed a lot recently because nowadays it's not just being good at food not having a good palate not being able to cook amazing food but it also has become like being a celebrity and being on camera and like in transforming itself um but at the end of the day, it's just about being in the kitchen and cooking good food, right? Yeah, for sure. And, and doing what you want to do. It's just like I've never been much of a rule follower. And you know, I don't think anybody else should either, especially when it comes to food. Maybe that's what I was trying to say earlier about the chef things. It's, I think there are right and wrong ways to do certain things. But most of it is you know knowledge and judgment. It's like you learn a lot of stuff over a long period of time. And once you kind of get it, then you can kind of pick and choose what's important to you. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes, you know, your cuisine yours. Yeah. Cool. That's rad. Maybe the imperfections are what make it yours. Hell yeah. Because at that point you're sort of developing your own style through the imperfections. That's why I think it's important to work at 
multiple restaurants coming up rather than just working at one restaurant your whole career. If you work at one restaurant, you only have one, I'm not going to say one skill set, you only have one viewpoint that you've learned and that eventually will just become yours and you won't have anything else. Whereas if you work at multiple restaurants, especially if you know kind of what you think you want to do and you can strategically pick those jobs mm-hmm. to, to learn specific skills that you think are going to enhance whatever it is that you think you're going to do, it all, which always changes, you know, like I'm constantly changing what I think we do or what I want to do, you know, it never goes to plan. And okay. So, all right. So the reason why I, we were talking about this before we started rolling, the reason why I have you on the show is because I, I firmly believe that there are parallels between what chefs do and what directors do. And I think a lot of that comes down to creating an experience for either as a viewer or for someone that's sitting at your table and eating your food, right? Yeah, absolutely. At that point, you guys are meticulously working the palate, working it with flavors and actually trying to create a experience for people, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of the problem with chefs is that they think that the only thing that's important is the food, but it's, it's not, it's, it's the whole experience, everything from the environment who you're dining with, how you're being taken care of, what you're drinking, what the music's like, what the lighting's like, what the room's like. It's just, it's, it all needs, to me, the most important thing is that everything is cohesive from the wine and spirits to the food, to the vibe, to the decor. It needs to say something. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure that applies to movies as well. Hell yeah, man, because you're, you're building that aesthetic. You're trying to create a, an alternate reality and you're trying to really sus- suspend disbelief, have people actually believe that they're in that space, have them get to the point where they feel like they can smell the world. That they're yeah, for sure. At, you know? and, and you want them to remember it also. And like that's, that's one of the things about dining. If, if there's no interaction or any real experience, you're not, you're not going to remember that. That's why I've been doing some research on like food psychology and stuff like that the past couple of years, just, you know, like on the side, just fun little interesting facts. And I guess the way that the, the brain intakes food is through, through the overall experience and like the conversing about the food. So through that, they discovered that basically the only two ways to make a meal memorable is either in a tasting menu format or a family style format. So if it's a la carte, so if we were all sitting here eating a la carte, like I order an appetizer, you order an appetizer, you order an entree, or I order an entree, we're eating different things, we probably wouldn't be talking about the same food unless we're like sharing that. Hmm. So it's actually the conversation and the interaction that makes that food memory stick. Hmm. So, you know, tasting menu, everybody's eating the same thing, family style, everybody's eating the same thing, therefore talking about it and that's how it that's how it works so at that point do you think it also has something to do with the fact that you're restricting their options like they're actually putting themselves more in your hands and sort of having your experience when you do like a tasting menu yeah absolutely i think that's one of the beautiful things about tasting menu we don't do tasting menus at hatch hall proper we do tasting menus for our special dinners that we do actually in this room that we're sitting in chatting right now uh, we like to call it the grandma grandma room. Right now, we're working on a dinner as part of our like food history inspired dinner series. Cool. First one that we did was called Fuss and Feathers, and that was like basically a tasting menu that would that each dish was inspired by a different story or quote or fact or 
you know, some kind of little snippet from like a certain region of America at a certain point in time. Whereas like the second dinner series that we're doing right now, uh, the chef de cuisine here, Martin, uh, he's heading it up. It's called Hemings and Hercules. And it's based on Thomas Jefferson and George Washington's enslaved chefs who were actually the two first celebrity chefs in America. Uh, <clears throat> it's a uh, James Hemings, uh, James Hemings and, uh, Hercules Caesar. Hmm, no shit. Yeah, that sounds rad. So, so how does that work? So, you guys, you guys uh, find a quota, you find some sort of detail, and then how do you guys design food based around that? So, with these dinners specifically, uh, we try to take the inspiration from the actual history or like something that we find amusing or interesting. Uh, through our research, where it's like, that's a question that people often ask about food. Yeah. And like in the regular restaurant, like you never know. And like you might see a turnip and like think turnip and then you do a turnip dish or, you know, it, inspiration can come from like so many different directions. But with these dinners that we're doing right now, it's really important to us that the inspiration comes from the actual history because that's what we're trying to tell through the dinners. Can you can you talk about what you're actually making? You, what are you guys making for this dinner? Oh, well, in Martin's dinner that we're doing right now, he's doing a. There's only the interesting thing about Hemings and Hercules is these two guys. There's almost no records of any of their recipes. They've been given no credit, and they're literally the most important people in food of the of their time. Uh, especially in my opinion, James Hemings. He was he was under Thomas Jefferson, who sent him to France uh, right during the French Revolution. And he was he was there right in the beginning. I think a, just a few years after the first actual restaurant ever was created in Paris. Wow. And he worked his way from the, you know, from the very, very bottom to the highest level of French chef that you could possibly get to. And he was sent there purely to do that and bring French technique back to America. And then... They basically merged Virginia cookery and, you know, French cookery and came up with, you know, Virginian French cookery. I think, <laughs> I think Thomas Jefferson's quote was like, to wed French and Virginian cookery is the happiest union in the history of cookery or something like that. And probably a little bit off, but that basically gets the point. So he was the one that brought like, knowledge of the stew stove which was like the precursor to the modern day stove back from france and you know all all the techniques like he was the one that brought macaroni and cheese and you know like custards and this and that like the only recorded recipe from hemmings is actually snow eggs which is like this sweet egg custard with little meringues on top <laughs> which martin's doing that for dessert in the dinner it's cool you know it's yeah. uh we like we like to dig in really dig into that kind of stuff because our country has such an interesting food history and nobody knows about it because nobody wants to talk about it because it's all tied to fucked up shit. <laughs> Dude, I, I had no idea. That's so cool. That is so fucking rad. So then, okay, so then you design a meal based upon like, like any sort of interesting facts that you're finding in their history? or mm -hmm. And then do you ever, so what portion... At what part of that design process are you guys thinking about palate and food and taste? Is that all mixed at the same time? or like? Yeah, I think when you're actually developing the dish itself, once you find the inspiration for that dish, that's 
you know, that's just what we do. Like, like once you, once you have the idea and what you want it to be like, then it's just lots of experimentation and balancing of flavors and weights and textures and all that kind of stuff. And in these dinners, like we don't normally, that's not what we do at Hatchet Hall. You know, we do, you know, rustic, you know, kind of nostalgic comfort food <clears throat> here, but we try to strike the same notes in these dinners, mm-hmm. but we just, we limit ourselves to, uh, no technology. We don't use any. We cook everything out of the hearth with wood fire. We wow. don't use any machines. We don't use any machines in the kitchen anyways, other than like a ham slicer and a stand mixer for baking. But for these dinners, we're like super strict. It's like nothing, nothing touches any kind of electric machine. Everything's done mortar and pestle, knives, wood fire, cast iron, so on and so forth. So in limiting ourselves to those resources, we feel like we deliver a slightly more authentic experience. Like we obviously have significantly more knowledge now than anybody had back then, but you know, setting up those boundaries makes for, you know, a better, a better story as well. It sounds like it's a, a, a like a lot of fun to fucking do too with it. When you have yeah, it's super cool. It's, it's intense because it's, even though it's only a few people, like we only do 12 people for dinner on, on this long table right here. Uh, but they're pretty intricate dishes compared to what we do in the restaurant proper and how many dishes for the course like how many dishes you get uh fuss and feathers which we did four four six week series uh one each season last year and like based on uh seasonal ingredients and you know events of the season historically and you know this and that uh we did like 16 or 17 courses for fuss and feathers but Hemings and Hercules, we're doing for a slightly lower price point, and it's about half the courses. So I think it's eight, it's eight courses, which is still like sixteen courses, a little much, honestly. <laughs> like for me, like I'm stoked because like I'll, I can sit there and eat endlessly, and I'll be happy the whole time I'm doing it. But like for most people, I think once you're around like twelve courses, they're like bored or full or yeah, like yeah. like ready to like do a shot or <laughs> lay on the couch, you know. <laughs> <clears throat> that's super cool man that in itself that's so interesting because you guys are curating it i love the idea of just having it be a tasting menu and then you've done such a great job curating this place it must be such a great experience i mean this place must transform when that when it's dark in here too it must oh be yeah great. like this room and the old man bar specifically like once it's dark like old man bar doesn't even open till eight o'clock like cool. we don't and we don't even have any lights back there really that we use it's just all candles uh yeah this room can be pretty pretty sexy when the when the light's right the, the whole restaurant's nicer because you don't see all like the blemishes and shit. sure it's like when you put the mo- you put the lights on the movie set it's the yeah, same kind of vibe. exactly yeah yeah exactly you I, see i love this shit man i think that like the the uh, I think that's one of the reasons why I mean because I'm a guy that likes to cook and I cook at home and I do that all the time. But one of the reasons why I love to go out is because of that experience, because of that immersive experience. Because I'm, it's like when you go over to your friend's house or you go over and you visit with family. You're getting that history. You're feeling like you're getting the history of the person that's feeding you this food. Like there's a story on every plate that comes out. Yeah, that's the beautiful thing about food. You know, yeah. you can like strike up all kinds of emotions. We actually like to use kind of like nostalgia and like kind of a memory forward. Like that's, that's kind of an ingredient for us. We try to like really like strike up those chords. Like our favorite compliment is like, that's like my grandma's, but even better. Hell yeah. It's like, let's get real. Like I'm sure there's like a lot of like really good American grandma 
cooks out there. But it's, we're not in it. We're not in Italy. Yeah, we're not. <laughs> uh, but it's it's the memories and the nostalgia that makes your grandma's cooking so good. You know, I'm sure there's exceptions to this, but I think most of the time that's what it is, and not actually the quality of that. Yeah, of course, of course, because you're hitting that at a very young age. It's like how people are nostalgic about movies. I mean. Is Goonies an amazing movie? I don't know. I think Goonies is great because we saw it when we were like, yeah, dude. You know, I watch like, Goonies like once a year. <laughs> yeah, <you know>? yeah. <laughs> it's one of those movies that you just saw at that important age where you're young and it's just very impressionable. Like all like John Carpenter's movies and the original Nightmare on Elm Street, mm-hmm. all those movies I'll just put on to feel like I'm back in that room when I was a kid and I saw. Yeah, it it's a cool. Time. It's a cool feeling to experience, and it's cool to be able to do that and kind of control it a little bit if you if you really think about it hell yeah man and you guys are doing the same thing with dishes you guys are doing the same thing with food actually i would actually claim even more so because food at least it's a tangible item that the person gets to interact with and eat and taste and do it at their own pace i love that stuff man yeah we all love that everybody loves food Yes, just shut up, guys. And you know what that means? That means it's time for us to do our sponsor read to this sweet. I don't know why we haven't changed that doorbell sound. <laughs> I don't know why we haven't done that yet. But anyway, I hope you guys have been enjoying the episode so far. Um, but it's time to show a little bit of love to our sponsors, to the people, to the men and women that uh, bring this show, make this show possible. Uh, first up, our good friends over at Puget Systems. If you're an uh, independent filmmaker, if you're a photographer, if you're a sound technician and you're looking to upgrade your computer because your computer isn't fast enough anymore, this always happens. We up- suddenly get an update on our software and it just outdates our fucking hardware. Drives me insane. Um, but uh, you're ready for a new machine, right? And you're pricing them out. Was that my phone? Man, I'm a piece of shit. You're looking for your new machine and you're pricing them out. And they're too expensive. Don't even look at me, Liam. Fuck yourself. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, the new stuff, like the top-end manufacturer stuff, is super expensive. Let's just say it. Apple. Apple's really fucking expensive, right? You go to their website and you start to price things out. They usually only give you three choices. And you go through and you're just like, what? I want more. I need more room. I need to upgrade my case. And they have the new towers that are coming out that are all upgradable. But fuck, it costs so much goddamn money. And all I want to do is I want to take that cash that you guys are spending on your advertising, and I want to take that cash that you guys are spending on your boxing experience, unboxing experience, and I want to put it in that machine. Okay, so if I'm going to hand you a few grand, I want that to go into fucking horsepower. I, I want my uh, video timelines with 4K, with 6K, I want them running real time. I don't want to wait. I don't want to wait for that shit. And we all know that hardware continuously upgrades. Software updates force us to upgrade our hardware. Our hardware, And I want to be able to open up my machine and change that shit out. I want it to be compatible. I want this machine to last me at least five years. I want to pay it off and make money on this machine as an editor, right? Or as a photographer. So go to PugetSystems.com. There you can build yourself a PC. Yes, I said it. A PC. It doesn't matter what system you use these days. Both systems run the same thing. We all use Adobe Creative Cloud. Doesn't make a difference. And now both systems can run out ProRes. Both systems can do the same fucking thing. And the thing I like about PCs 
is that they're upgradable, they're no frills, uh, and they're super fast, right? And so everything that you've seen from me, all my movies, 12 cam, who's there, all that stuff has all been cut on PCs, on a Puget Systems PC, nonetheless. So go to PugetSystems.com, check them out. There you can pick a PC or baseline package based upon the software you use. Click on Photoshop, and then it'll tell you the, the perfect baseline package to use for the newest version of Photoshop. And then you can actually customize that the shit out of that machine. You can reach out to Puget and say, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm building. This is how much money I have. And they'll advise you on it. It's a great way to spend your cash. It's a smart way to spend your cash. And their customer, uh, their customer support is outstanding. Out fucking standing. So at the end of the day, if you're going to look for a new PC, if you're going to look for a new computer, go to PugetSystems.com. Wow. This is a, I'm just going to be fully uh, upfront with you guys. We're banging out two episodes at the same time. So if I start getting super tongue twisted, it's because I'm really beating the shit out of my mouth right now. <laughs> anyway. Um, I'll, what's that? Yeah, it's very hot. Fucking creep. Anyway, uh, also supporting the show continuously, our good friends at Quasar Science, one of the best advancements in the movie industry of the past five, seven years, has been lighting. The uh, super advancements uh, in LED lighting have changed the game. So if you're watching your Netflix shows, if you're watching movies in the cinema and you're noticing how dynamic this lighting is, um, how amazing the practical cues are, uh, it all is because of LED lighting. And one of the forefronts, the company at the forefront of this stuff is Quasar Science. Go to quasarscience.com. There you can check out their uh, LED lights, their LED tubes. They have bicolor LED tubes. They also have RGB uh, LED tubes. Um, a great place to pick up that kit. So if you're, like, you're a photographer or you're just um, an independent uh, videographer and you need a new kit, people ask me all the time, what are you using? What gear are you using? Uh, in my kit are Quasar tubes. Quasar tubes, they run cooler. Not just color temperature, but they run cooler as far as heat off the light. They don't require that much power. Uh, and you can easily fit them in the back of your hatchback. Super easy to use. Really important to have in your kit if you're starting out. So go to QuasarScience.com and check them out. Um, and if you want to support the show, there's a couple ways to do so. You can either throw me some loot by donating. If you go to InLoveWithTheProcess.com, there's a donate button there. And uh, click on that. You can donate 15 bucks to the show, which is like, hey, man, you're the shit for doing that. You're the shit. I'll give you a shout out if you do that. So go donate 15 and I'll give you a shout out for it. Um, but if you're like the rest of us and your wallets are light right now, we're just coming out of the back end of fucking tax season. Goddamn government sucking everything out of us. And uh, you've got nothing left. I get it, man. But you can still support the show. And the easiest way to do so, if you haven't done so already on another podcast, uh, you can sign up for the Audible free trial. Go to audibletrial.com backslash in love with the process. The link will be underneath the episode. Uh, there you can sign up for a 30-day free trial, which comes with a free audiobook. And if you like it, stick around. Check out some more of the books. Check out all the really great audio content. But... If you don't like it, cancel after 30 days. No big deal on us, man. Either way, it's great. Either way, we get paid. Uh, so it's a good way to support the show. 
The link will be below the episode. And for the love of God, click the links, please. They're trackable links. And the sponsors will notice. The sponsors will continue to stay on the show as long as you click the link. It's just like a fucking easy thing to do. Please do it. And you know what? While we're at getting you guys to do things, what are you listening to? Where are you listening to this show? Are you listening to the show on Apple Podcasts? Are you listening to the show on Spotify? I think we're now on Google Podcasts. Yes, we're now on Google Podcasts. We're on Stitcher. We're on all these different outlets. Wherever it is that you are listening, that you are subscribing to the show, subscribe to the show. That way you get to hear it first. Subscribe to the show. But if you're not subscribing, or even if you are, leave a review. Leave us a review. It helps us. It helps with that fucking AI shit. You leave reviews, we will show up on lists. We will beat the system. We will show up on Skynet's radar. So leave reviews, please, below each of these shows on whatever uh, outlet that it is that you're listening to. And if you can't find a place to leave a review, then leave a review at the Instagram accounts. All right? I love to hear what you guys think. Be like, Mike, I love the chef show. Stop talking about making movies. And let's talk about food more. I doubt that would ever be a review. But if it is, you know, do it. I'm into it. All right? Um, and then if you also, another way to support the show is uh, by signing up for our Capital One deals on our website in the sponsor. So add in love with the process.com backslash sponsors. There you can click on any of our Capital One deals. Now, if you're someone that is responsible with your spending, listen to us on this. If you're someone that is in credit card debt, doesn't has bad credit, doesn't know how to deal with that stuff, then don't. Okay. But if you're looking to expand your business a bit, if you need a credit card for rentals, if you need a credit card just for travel, I highly suggest you either sign up for the Capital One Venture Card or the Venture One Card. The difference between the two, the Venture Card has a $95 annual fee, guys. But you get two times the points per dollar you spend all the time. And for signing up, you get a 50,000 point bonus for spending $3,000 or more within, I think it's the first three months of signing up for the account. So that equals $500 towards travel, okay, for doing that. But remember, there is an annual fee, $95 annual fee. So if you're someone that's not putting a lot of cash through, if you don't have a bunch of jobs, maybe you go for the Venture One card, which has no annual fee. And um, I think it was, uh, I think it was $1,000. I don't have it in front of me. But if you sign up for the for the uh, venture card uh, within the first three months if you spend I think it's a thousand dollars in the first three months you'll get a twenty thousand uh, mile bonus right which is two hundred dollars to travel it's got less uh, points per dollar I think it's only one and a quarter per dollar uh, but there's no annual fee right so go check them out and load the process.com backslash sponsors if you are looking to sign up for a credit card do it through there we actually get a little bit of loot and it helps us out, so that's great. Uh, and that is it. Let's get back to it. Let's get, pull ourselves back up to the table and uh, have some more uh, great insight into how uh, Brian creates his dishes and where the food comes from. Thanks for listening. So. 
So, uh, so you started uh, cooking in that in that restaurant. You started. That's where you started. When did you hit a point that you decided that you wanted to open up your own place or go into like run your own spot? Oh, always. You know, like from the beginning, I always I was like, I'm going to open a restaurant before I'm 30, and you know, you're like 25 years old. Like like six years later, 25, you're like. There's no way this is ever going to happen. And then, you know, next thing you know, like a couple years later, you're like, holy shit, I have my own restaurant? How did this happen? <laughs> I don't even know what I'm doing. It seems like such an impossible feat to get over because it's so expensive to open up a restaurant. It's like doing a movie, for God's sakes. Yeah. Uh, we had a, a very odd coming up, for sure. Uh, some buddies, well, my business partner, Strayer and I, and uh, another guy that we worked with at a restaurant called Joe's in Venice, which is like a old, like super old school, famous, uh, fine dining restaurant from like the nineties, early two thousands, uh, rest in peace, Joe. Um, <laughs> we all came up there together and then we all kind of went our own ways, all still hanging out and stuff like that. And I got another job somewhere else and this like pop up restaurant opportunity came to me and really me and my buddy Chris from Joe's I was like hey let's let's do this thing and we did it and it just completely blew up and like we got like a really big following doing that it was called Wolf and Sheep's Clothing it was on Abbott Kinney oh, uh, right yeah. across the street from like Tasting Kitchen and Jelena oh cool over there yeah we did that like, I think 2000 shit 2010 or something like that. We were like kids. Not really. I think I was like 20, 27 or 28, but we were like raging, dude. Like we would like, <laughs> we, we had like butcher's paper on all these shitty tables with all this mismatched, you know, silverware and plates, which we actually still do till this day, just because like that's how we started. We're like, oh, cool. It's kind of our thing. Yeah. <clears throat> like hand illustrated art, like that was done with Sharpies in like 10 minutes. And like, but you know, <laughs> We didn't give a shit. We were young and we were like super after it and we worked our asses off and like, yeah, we'd host, we'd like do service all night and then get off, like go down to the liquor store and like buy a bottle of, you know, Ardbeg and then play, <laughs> play poker and skateboard in the restaurant, like wreck into tables and breaking glasses and like lo losing money, <laughs> winning money, sleeping in booths. Uh, and that lasted for al almost a year, which is really cool because it was supposed to be like a three-month thing, but it was so successful that the person that took over the lease is like, yeah, you guys stay and do your thing. Just keep paying my rent for me. I'm like, all right, cool. You know, we'll, we'll take it. And then that led to uh, the Heart and Hunter, which is on Melrose and Fairfax. Uh, that was kind of our big, our big come up. Mm -hmm. uh, we were running a full-service restaurant out of a coffee shop in a hotel. Uh, got a lot of accolades. Through that, uh, probably the first people to do Southern food in Southern California that I know of, at least <laughs> at like a high level, got reviewed by Jonathan Gold, have been reviewed by Jonathan Gold a couple times since, and uh, that was it, pretty much. Like that's kind of sums up our career. So how does a, because a lot of people don't know, how does a pop-up work? What is, a, what, is, what is the difference between a pop-up and an actual restaurant? Well, in this case... Uh, it was a long-term, long-standing restaurant that was kind of famously unsuccessful for a long time. And uh, they were coming to the end of their lease and she needed some help. And we were like, hey, we'll you know, pay your rent and your bills and give you this percentage of whatever it is that we do. 
which is like significantly better. Like we had, like this lady was very, very sweet and it, it felt really good. Cause like we kind of changed her life at that point. Cause she'd been in like hard times for quite a while. <clears throat> and like for, I think for her to see that place just pop, like popping, like popping, popping <clears throat> after seeing it dead for so long, I kind of made it for her. Wow. Alana, very sweet, very sweet lady. Old, old Venice, old Venice gal been in the area for a really long time. Um, and yeah, we just basically, we started it with like three, three grand and, uh, like with a bunch of broken equipment and no inventory and like, you know, we were kids, so people were into it. You know, yeah, we, yeah. we were wild. We didn't care. <laughs> like kick people out. You know, you don't like that? Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> you know? <clears throat> I wish that all places would do that. I honestly do. Like, I, I, I get so mad at people that go into restaurants and they feel like they own the fucking place. And it's like, you're literally going to someone's home. You're literally walking into someone's place. Yeah. Well, you know, we're having, we're having people here, but even with an invite, you know, it's still, you got to respect. Like, well, like, if people disrespect the staff here, it's just like, sorry, get yeah. out. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. The sense of entitlement drives me crazy when I see that shit. Yeah. I think, the problem, like everybody needs to work in a restaurant for one year. That's it. Like just so they, just so they know, like, like, Hey, these people need to be tipped and yeah. like their job's hard and don't be rude to them because it sucks. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, I mean, you guys are busting your ass. Like how do, how does a regular, what is a regular day like for you? What are your hours like normally? Um, nowadays, Nowadays, my life's pretty good as far as it comes to being a chef because I have a super strong team that's been with me since most of the kitchen's been with me since the beginning. It's like people that come in, they either stay a really long time or they're like like out in a month, you know, because we just we don't deal with shit. We just right. you know, we just cut it loose if we know it's not going to work. <clears throat> uh, my day, I normally get up pretty early. I normally ride my bicycle for about three. I don't know, two, two to four hours every wow. morning. Wow. Almost. Uh, get in here around like noon or one, go through the walk in, we'll do the menu, prep stuff, get ready and do a lineup and then open the doors. Yeah. That's not bad, dude. Nah, dude. It's super like we, dude, we used to work the most insane hours of all time. Like when we first opened, I think my partner and I, Strader, we worked like 150 days prior to opening straight and then like 150 days after opening without ever taking a day off. My God. Like, like full zombie. And I'm talking about like 18 hour days. Like I would be in here at seven o'clock in the morning and leaving at four, like staying, you know, like drinking and stuff at <laughs> night. <clears throat> and then, you know, it mellows out after a while. I was actually walking around the market, the Santa Monica farmer's market uh, like, like a zombie, like just like, well, like I had no emotions or awareness of any kind. Cause I was just so, so burned out, but I refused to not, uh, not be at the restaurant cause Jonathan Gold hadn't come in yet. I was like, I'm not taking a day off until gold comes. <clears throat> that took a very long time. So I eventually I took a day off. Uh, and my buddy, Jeremy Fox, he came up to me and he's like, dude, and he's like, I've seen, I've seen this look before. He's like, you need to, yeah, you need to take it easy. He's like, you need to get out of the restaurant. And I didn't have to say anything. Like, he just like saw me. He's like, come back here behind this, behind the stand. And next day, I was in San Francisco. I was like, peace. <laughs> just left. I was at San Francisco, and uh, I was having dinner at uh, 
Tartine or Bar Tartine in the Mission District. Really, really been. great restaurant. Yeah. It's not there anymore. And then I get a call from Strader. He's like, dude, Jonathan Gold just walked in. And I'm like, oh my God. Obviously, the first day that I leave, <laughs> Jonathan Gold comes in. And then I'm like, all right. And I you know, hang up the phone. And then he calls me back. He's like, I'm just fucking with you, dude. <laughs> it's like, oh my God. Like I literally, my heart like almost like popped out of my f- mouth. Yeah, no. Talk about the end of the <laughs> talk about the end of your vacation at that point. No, he thought it was hilarious. <laughs> it's good. I got I got him back pretty good though. He was out of town and uh, we we got a bunch of people in on it and we like you know fire because <laughs> <laughs> we had, we had a little a little fire incident like the day before we opened. Here that really really stressed straighter out to say the least. So we were, I was like, yeah, I'm gonna hit him real low, real low, real hard for ruining my ruining my dinner. <laughs> there was actually these food people sitting next to me when I got the call, and I was freaking out. And then they were like, "What? You're like you just left your restaurant? Jonathan Gold's there?" <laughs> well, yeah, because like having a great review like that just that changes everything for the restaurant, right? Oh yeah, for sure. Like the year that we had after our gold review was like untouched by any other year. It's I don't know if we'll ever be able to do those numbers <laughs> again because it was just like it's crazy. Because but then you get like all these different demographics because you know like people our age don't aren't like going and picking the paper up at the end of the driveway and like going and reading over coffee. It's like really <laughs> doing. We get stuff on our phones and like you know mostly that kind of stuff. Uh, so like when, when you get reviews in paper, you tend to get like a lot of gray hairs and stuff like that, which is always really interesting because people like people either love us or they hate us like younger, like the younger demographic likes us a lot. They like the kind of like our way or the highway, Mm -hmm. you know, good music, kind of loud, vibey, yada, yada. Uh, and like you get like the, like older school people in here and they're just like it's too loud it's too dark yeah why yeah. won't you cook my steak medium well you know it's like that, well, why did, why did you come out yeah why did you come to my spot yeah oh my god that must drive you I, that's it must drive you, it must drive you nuts like the, the, the cool thing about what i do when i make movies and stuff is that people really aren't directly involved they watch it they afterwards they have their experience but like when i'm making it when i'm actually doing it they have no connection to how i how i make a piece mm-hmm. and it seems like you guys are a lot more closely connected to folks because it's almost like you guys are doing like a like a play it's almost like you're doing like a stage performance every night i never really thought about it like that but that's like right right on because we also don't use recipes, and we change the menu all the time. We've done well well over a thousand dishes out of here. I stopped keeping count once we hit like twelve hundred or something wow. like that. Uh, we're actually trying to tone it down a little bit because we just like kind of like irresponsibly just change the menu constantly <laughs> rather than like really dialing things. And like that's more what we're focusing on right now. It's like we know we can just keep on whipping out dishes like left and right. You know, it's like, there's no limitations there, but like now it's time to kind of like tighten things up. Let's get like, you know, be a little bit more perfectionists and more attention to detail and less, you know, less is more sometimes we're even shrinking the actual menu size just so we can focus on like the consistency and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, that, that just comes with age, right? That just comes with time. Well, yeah. It's like, you can just like, yeah, it just, just comes with age. You just got to dial it in. You know, the older you get, the 
I think the more you realize what's really important. Mm. And what's really important for you now? Moving forward. Yeah. You got, you got bigger plans besides this place? Like what, what's, what's your next step? Uh, next step, well, you know, we want to do another restaurant. We'd like to take the, the Fuss and Feathers dinner series into a more permanent home for sure. Like, you know, concepts like that are tough though. Like fine dining is hard to, hard to make money off of nowadays unless you're really experienced, experienced or like really good at it, which, you know, we haven't really had that much experience doing that. Um, but we have, a, we have a bunch of concepts that are like, we're really passionate about that we want to start getting out there and we're not like a concept restaurant team there's you know just different vibes like we, we really want to do we want to do a vegetarian restaurant we want to do a seafood restaurant and you know a handful handful of other ones as well mm-hmm. one thing that's interesting is 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 taking the audience or or your customers into consideration I, you notice this when you go to a lot of different restaurants. Like, there's always the hits on the menu. There, you're, you're always going there, and it's like there's always a cheeseburger. There's always like some sort of wings. There's always something specific on the menu. Do you guys do that same sort of thing? Are you guys focused on making sure that there's something on the menu that the like the general guy that walks off the street's gonna love, or are you guys just like this is our vibe, and you either like it or you don't? Fuck yeah, it. we're kind of take it or leave it. And and we used to not really have anything that stayed on the menu all the time, but over the years the customers have kind of chosen what those are. And like just, just recent recently have we been like, all right, these are the dishes that are always going to be on the menu, which are very few. And then the rest will continue to rotate more slowly (laughs) with more attention to detail. So it's like, like we always have our potato yeast rolls with honey butter and country ham on the menu. Uh, We always do like a lettuces salad with like a garlic dressing. That's kind of a nod to Judy Rogers at Zuni Cafe. Uh, you know, famous Caesar, um, like Caesar salad. They they make their cooks do it to order there. Really? Yeah. It's like they should just do table side. Uh, you know, you take the parmesan and the anchovies, and you make the fucking dressing and with the breadsticks. <laughs> <clears throat> and then we do we do a skillet cornbread. That's probably my favorite thing. I think that's like the one thing that I can say that we probably do better than everybody else is our cornbread. Oh yeah. Uh, it's actually an adaptation of an old Edna Lewis recipe who's like she's like kind of the dom the queen dom of southern cooking or was she passed away a few years ago yeah. but uh and a mangalista pork chop that we do on the on the wood grill that's like super gangster our buddy uh raises the pigs for us and it's just like oh. we we claim like almost all the pork chops off of all of his pigs oh yeah they're so good you speak in my language like last weekend my uncle actually went out hunting and he uh Got a wild boar, so we mm-hmm. took down like a two hundred twenty pound wild boar, and we did like a ragu, and we were smoking it. I could, I'm gonna die because there's too much pork in my system. Yeah, <laughs> I just love pork. Boar is good. The funny thing about boar is like, really, most of the parts should be cooked medium rare, but you can't eat boar medium, medium rare because it yeah. carries like some kind of parasite or worm or something like that. It can make you sick. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, Martin has been doing uh, wild boar ribs. Yes. Here, yeah, we we just recently took them off the menu. But super delicious. He just did a, uh, like I think, like a 3% salt brine on, uh, on beet greens. So basically I did like a beet green kraut, yeah, uh, like a yeah, fermented yeah. kraut. And then the like, so like baked, you know how like in the South, like they'll bake ribs also. Yeah. Makes yeah. them like super tender. Like it doesn't get smoke on it, but it makes them super tender. He was, he was baking them in pork fat and then we were glazing them in 
like a glaze that we made with sorghum, which is like similar to like a molasses in flavor, just like a little bit more mild, uh, mixed with the like the kraut juice for the basting sauce, and then just like really like charring them mm-hmm. over the over the wood, like you know like that nice like burnt the mm-hmm. good burnt mm-hmm. sugar flavor, not the bad burnt sugar flavor. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, those guys were pretty delicious. Jesus Christ. <laughs> my mouth is just watering thinking about that <laughs> well by the time you guys get out of here they'll be lighting up the fire and everything so you can see the hearth and hell yeah hearth in action so um so uh southern cooking right so what is we were talking a little bit about it what is uh what is your what is the ultimate comfort dish for you when you think southern cooking what is your ultimate um it's kind of like the same question as like, what would your last meal be? Which the the last podcast they asked me the same thing. They every they always ask that question. It's a, good, it's a good question because it really sums up a chef. Um, I would say just any any kind of like seafood boil, like a low country boil, a frogmore stew, or like crawfish boil, crab boil, you know, potatoes, sausage, corn, mm-hmm. all that stuff with cheap beer. It definitely is my favorite. So when you think about that, is there a specific memory that, that is always associated with that? Yeah, for sure. So I grew up in Georgia and like we're the only family of like in our entire family that's like outside of Colorado is my my family are all ranchers in Colorado or farmers farmers and ranchers in Colorado. Cool. And like we're the only ones to move out except for one other family and they live in Pensacola, Florida, which is only about like 5 or 6 hour drive and that's right in the Gulf. It it might as well be, you know, like Louisiana or Texas or anything cuz it's like it's very short. You can get like from there to there in a matter of hours. <clears throat> So we would always go down there and stay with them like several times a year. And then my cousin Jim, I think of him as an uncle because, you know, he's like my dad's age. And my dad, Jim's like a wild man. My dad's like kind of conservative. But when they get together, they kind of like, they're like a transformer. They like become this funny, like funny duo. (laughs) And we go to this place called Joe Patty's Seafood, which is in Pensacola Beach. Uh, Just the most amazing Gulf seafood uh market there is i actually saw i've seen like a couple chefs there like big chefs like the first time i met john best was there wow that was when i was pretty young that's before we opened heart and the hunter we were actually doing re- we were on a road trip doing southern food research because my business partner had never been to the south and we were going to be cooking southern food uh but anyway that's where we saw john best <clears throat> but my dad and Jim would just basically have a competition, like just one upping each other. Cause we mm-hmm. do these huge seafood cookouts and like, you know, just like rigging up fireworks in the most dangerous ways. Like that's, that's, I was like Jim, you know, he'd like tie like a thousand dollars for the fireworks together and like try to make like one crazy ass firework, you know, <laughs> that would always go wrong. Um, and they would just try to one up each other, like buying more and more seafood. So we'd have like this insane amounts of seafood, like everything from, you know, they'd make jambalaya, boiled uh, crabs, yeah. low country boil, grilled, you know, everything, like every kind of seafood you could imagine. Uh, and that definitely stuck with me. And then like every single one of my birthdays that I've done, you know, we do some kind of boil. Like when we do parties here, mm-hmm. we do boils. Ah, it's yeah. easy. And it's like, it's more of an accoutrement to beer than it is like <laughs> yeah. a meal. You know, like I can eat crawfish all day because you yeah, can't right. eat them fast enough to get full. Right. I, I can sit there and eat like, I can eat a pile this big of crawfish. 
and at that point you have to work for your food too and it's like this interesting sort of social well, exchange here, like we're sitting here drinking beers eating crawfish like yeah, yeah. you know what i mean <clears throat> but you know it doesn't necessarily have to be crawfish you know i i went to school in charleston so i'm like super familiar with the low country boil we've actually done that several times on menus in the past not here but like that was like one of our things that we did at heart and hunter dude it sounds, frog like, stew. sounds fucking amazing and that story i could just picture that place i could picture everything that's happening there yeah dude well, there's a golf course that backed up into their backyard and they had like a pool so like god we, they were for adults they were pretty yeah they, some <laughs> debauchery and stuff it was, it was pretty fun <laughs> so you were saying that you went on a road trip you went on like a culinary road trip to sort of yeah we flew in so this is chris tamanagi he's the chef at manuela uh in the arts district okay now they also do southern food um that was before we opened up Heart and the Hunter after Wolf and Sheep's Clothing. So that was like going to be our like first like real brick and mortar spot that we have done. And so we flew into Atlanta. We stayed with my parents and we, you know, we tore up Atlanta. And then I can't remember the exact order that we went, but we did like Charleston, Savannah, Apalachicola, Pensacola, New Orleans, Birmingham, and then back to Atlanta and flew out. Badass. Badass. We do. We, I think Chris legitimately, we both put on some weight. It was like a 12 day eating trip. We were eating like six or seven meals a day. Like just going balls out. Cause like, (laughs) you know, we were just like sticking money in our pockets at Wolfman's Chief's clothing because it's like a pop up. And we were like, And, like, I think we blew everything we made on that road trip. Just, like, <laughs> I remember there was, like, a picture of me, like, yawning in front of Cochon in, in Louisiana, in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And, like, I just had this, like, like, I'm super skinny. But, like, when I eat a bunch of food, my belly just pokes out. And it's, like, a cartoon character. It's, like, that yellow <laughs> bastard in Sin City. Yes. <laughs> it's, like, that's what I look like. <clears throat> it was good. Yeah, Chris put on, like, 20 pounds on that trip. It was it was good. Dude, the adventures like that, I love them so much. I, for years, I would do it. I still do it every once in a while. We used to do music videos. So we'd travel around. We'd have to go to where all the artists were. So we'd have to fly into a spot and shoot in a city that we'd never been in before. And one of the things I used to have my old assistant do was make me a list. Make me a list of like the worst piece of shit bars in this town and make me a list of places that are really cool. And we'd always stay an extra day and we would do what we called a bar safari which essentially was you go to one, you go to, you make a list, you go to that first place, you hang out with the bartender and the bartender gives you their list and you throw your list out. And the rule was you go to each place, you have either one drink or one dish in that spot. And you try to hit as many as possible. I love it. And you had to sit at the bar and either talk to the bartenders or talk to the people that are in the place. And we do it on like a Monday or Tuesday. And that's how I would sort of discover these cities. Because I think when you're sitting with food and you're hanging out with people that are eating food, they're so much more receptive to having a good conversation with you you start to get a bit of history and especially on like a monday or a tuesday when it's fucking slow like half the people that are working in that spot are ready to sit around and have a conversation with you too oh for sure hospitality people are great like that's what like we just recently went to new orleans and that's basically what we did we'd like sit at the bar we'd talk to the bartender be like where do you like to go they would send us somewhere they'd be like say what's up to this person at the bar tell them i sent you Sit down, eat there, yeah, go man. somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We go on these trips. We just like that's all. All we do is eat. So we're just like one place to another, but we like do it strategically. We're okay. We're gonna eat this here. We're gonna go grab a drink here. We're gonna eat a 
a little bit more than we ate there here. We'll probably be <laughs> kind of full, so we'll go to this place and we'll shoot some fernet and help us settle our stomach and we'll have this meal. You know. <laughs> I love it, man. It's my favorite. It's the only way I like to travel now. When I go places, I don't do like touristy bullshit. I don't do any of that stuff. It's just yeah, like- you you got to get the, the non-tourist food stuff. Like L.A. especially. I think like L.A. Like I have a list of restaurants that I give to chefs that come to L.A. that want to like really experience the good you stuff got, here. You got to give me a list. Oh, you got to give me that list. Oh, we, got it, we got it pretty dialed. And it's like I don't even eat at restaurants like this anymore. It's like I'm like... LA is defined by like $20 or less. Fuck yeah. yeah. I've had like so many $5 items that have made my eyes like roll back in my head. Yeah, and I've eaten some, some really nice restaurants and I'm like, what the fuck are they thinking? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, dude, for me, because I'm an East Coast kid, I grew up on the East Coast. I was in Boston for years. I never thought I'd come to Los Angeles. I had to come out here for work, blah, blah, blah. So uh, I was always like anti LA for years and years and years. And then when I came out here, the one thing that has surprised me the most is the fucking food and the variety of food out here and how fucking great the food out here is in Los Angeles. Yeah, the food in Los Angeles is like really, really started popping off once, you know, I'd say what in the past seven, seven years or so maybe. Yeah. Because when I first moved here, I came and I worked at a restaurant called Providence, which is over in Hollywood. It's like the number one restaurant in Los Angeles and has been for ever. Michael Simmers is an incredibly talented chef. Um, But when I left... Providence, I just I wasn't like into what was happening in Los Angeles. I was like, the food in Atlanta is way better than the food is here. Why am I here? Like, <laughs> there's nowhere I'm gonna like. I want to work where I'm gonna like learn things that I want to learn to do the kind of food that I want to do. So I ended up sending off like resumes to all kinds of like top top chefs in uh, in the South. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I think at the time I hit up. Like John Besh and Mike Lotta and Charleston and, you know, like every, you know, Frank Stitt at, you know, Highland Bar and Grill and like sure, every, yeah. everybody that I looked to up, up to at the time. And I got job offers at every, every single one of them. And then, you know, but I had like three months before I was moving because I needed to like, I couldn't afford to break my lease because I didn't have any money and you sure. know, all that, you know, the whole LA thing. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, then I ended up. Uh, going to Joe's in Venice, it's like the old standing French restaurant, uh, and they were like, "Oh, you worked at Providence. They're like, well, do you want do you want a management position?" And I was like, "Uh, okay." <laughs> it's like so that was actually my first management job, and I had lived in Santa Monica forever. It was like commuting to my job in Hollywood, which is on bus, which was just like crazy to commute like three or four hours a day, mm-hmm. and then work you know ten or twelve hours mm-hmm. a day, and not be making much money and you know just like struggling was like super hard <clears throat> but once i started working at joe's like i made a bunch of friends over there and like figured out very quickly that venice was much more my vibe at that time than santa monica was because i really hated santa monica i still kind of do yeah I don't uh, <laughs> but uh yeah a- after that it was it was history i was like okay cool at least cool started experiencing more things and like seeing more of the city and, you know, it's been like 12 years or something like that. And like now I think I finally understand the city and appreciate it for what it, what it really is. Yeah, I live in Highland Park now. Yeah. So it's like we have like the most gangster Mexican food in the city over there. It's so good. You can get like anything you want any hour of the day. And then we get like San Gabriel Valley and Alhambra and everything very close. So you got like that other end of it. And there's some good stuff over there some real good stuff and everything's inexpensive you know i had like tacos last night for like six bucks 
And I was just like, dude, I ate like six tacos too. And like, this is like 11 at night. <laughs> and I could have gone back and easily eaten like another six. I've had stuff over there and it's fucking amazing. Yeah. There's, there's Especially a lot. the Mexican food and the, like, the, the amount of effort that goes into making that shit. And it's so inexpensive. It's like, it's insane to me. Like how yeah, much time. Lots of, lots of flavor. And really that's what it comes down to. It's like, you know, I've eaten at some pretty nice restaurants throughout California over the past couple of years. And Strader and I eat out all the time. And we always put every, every meal that we have, we don't, we don't talk about it or judge it until we get the check. And then we say to ourselves, what would we have gotten for this much at Sushi King? <laughs> 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 Sushi King's our, our go-to sushi spot. It's on, it's on Wilshire in Santa Monica. We sit in front of this dude named Shinji. He's a badass. He's actually like very young for a sushi chef too, which is surprising because uh-huh. uh, he's got mad skills. And it's just like very, very simple, delicious, like nigiri sushi, like no frills, but it's like so good. So good. Um, and it's like not, it's not that expensive. It's not, it's not cheap because sushi is not cheap, but it's like you go to like a really nice restaurant and you pay like three times as much and have like half the experience. Yeah. 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 So at the end of the day, do you think it's, it's it's flavor over technique then, right? Uh, no, I think it's a combination of both. Especially like like sushi, like that's all technique. Like buying good, recognizing good fish and buying good fish. If you learn how to do it, it's pretty easy. You know, it's like okay, cool, I got good fish. It's like now, what do you do with it? Mm. It's like because they do so little, and that's why I love eating sushi so much. My favorite food. Uh, I just I haven't I don't want to learn about it at all. <laughs> I do I really I really badly do, but I feel like once you learn about it, like the mystery is gone. Exactly, and then you can't enjoy it as much because then you then you start critiquing it, and you're like, oh, I like I rather like not knowing. I say that all the time. I, I honestly I've said that about beer. I have my my buddy of mine is like a huge beer guy, and he comes and he tries to tell me about. It. I'm like. Look, dude, anything that I learn about, I become too much of a snob and it's not fun anymore. So yeah. I just don't, I don't care. Like, yeah, absolutely. Put a beer in front of me and let me have it. Let me enjoy it. And that's it. That's kind of the way I want to be. Yeah I, yeah, I definitely think technique is super, super important. Yeah, I was talking to my buddy Ori at Bestia and uh, Bavel and... You know, I was like talking, I was like, no, I was like the guys, they're, you know, that work for me, they're like really good and like, they, you know, they're great cooks and probably better cooks than I am now. Yeah. And he's like, he's like, really? He's like, so they're doing, they're, they have their hands on every dish, every single dish for Fuss and Feathers or are you doing that? And I was like, well, I'm doing that. He's like, well, why are you doing that? And I was like, I was like, all right, you're right. <laughs> it's attention, it's attention to detail and like really thinking about what you're doing while you're doing it. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the reason we cook by hand here and we don't use any technology is because it kind of allows you time to create those moments where you have enough time to actually think about what you're doing. Like, why am I making this cut this way? Or why am I emulsifying this sauce? this way or like why am i adding this why am i adding that <clears throat> whereas like if you just throw everything into a blender like like for example like think about like a like a salsa verde or something like a bunch of herbs and garlic and oil and vinegar and mm-hmm. all that good stuff like throw it into a blender bzz, boom like like that's it that's done you like, taste it you're like all right well i guess that's that's what it is whereas like if you're making it by hand like you know you like chopped herbs you see how much you're putting in there oh, yeah. <clears throat> right, right. you're working it in the mortar and pestle you can you're tasting it and adding things like you can't take things away but you can always add little by little and then until and then you're like Okay, I got it. 
there it is. And do you think it tastes better because you're doing it that way? I think it tastes better because there's more attention to detail and you're thinking about what you're doing more. Mm. And I think things done by hand taste better. But that's also like a biased thing because that's like our mantra here. Dude, it makes sense. I mean, in our business, it's the difference between using CGI all the time and doing practical effects. Yeah, well, I also like the finesse and the skill of it. You know, they say, like, food's one of the only things that will never be able to be done purely by machines. You know, like, you can't make, machines can't make the judgment calls and taste and adjust and, like, they can't put it all together. It's like, yeah, they can can spam and shit like that, but, like, that's not what we're talking about. Right, right. <clears throat> so that's why I think it's really important to maintain that that skill level. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like most American cooks that come in here now, like, don't last, like, a second because nobody has nobody takes the time to learn the things that are really important. Like, all these little things that are very important eventually, like, add up into what you're doing and like if you're only doing half of the stuff skillfully and the other half not skillfully, it's like it's not going to it's like half and half. That's not good enough. <clears throat> but I just think people don't like to work as hard as they used to. And like let me precursor this with like I'm half new school and like half old school. Like okay. I like I think both sides are important. But like full new school or full old school is just too much of the same thing. It's like you gotta you gotta put in the time. Like nowadays, like people don't want to work twelve hour days, and it's not it's not like a putting in your dues or hazing thing. It's like that's how long it takes to learn this shit because there is so much. Unless you want to be forty five when you open your first restaurant, which nowadays like you're you know on your way out at that age. Like back in the day, it's like yeah, like that's when like I think chefs would like come into it. <clears throat> you know, when when I was working at Joe's, I'd get there at like seven in the morning. Go through the walk-in, write down everything I had to use, write the dishes for the day, uh, delegate and execute all that stuff, help out all the nighttime people, get ready for service, probably leave around like 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock at night, go home, pass out from exhaustion like with all my like chef whites on (laughs) on my little tiny ass studio apartment bed, which was literally a third of the size of this room. And then I'd wake myself up, fell asleep with my clothes on, take a shower, pack a bag full of books, go to the coffee shop, get lit up on coffee, and like just like write down ideas. And I continue to do that until this day. Wow. But like that, that was like what I did until a couple, couple of years ago. You know, I just didn't, that's all I did was work. Work, 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 work. But, you know, we've been running our own businesses for almost 10 years. Yeah. And we're, you know, 35, 33 and 35 years old. Yeah, so it's like it's the work that you put into it. So you gotta you gotta learn it. You can't you can't cheat it because it takes actual skill. It takes skill and knowledge. And I learn every day. I don't know shit. I think I do. But like ten years from now, I'll be like you were a little thirty five year old asshole that didn't know shit. <laughs> it's true, man. I I feel the same way. I think that's kind of what makes it exciting. That's why the job doesn't get fucking boring. Exactly. I was like, I'll shifting. always love cooking, and I can learn everything I can learn in like a hundred lifetimes, and haven't even dipped into it you know just think about like how many different countries and regions and villages and yeah you know like there's so many different cuisines and ingredients and even on top of that just think about all the languages like just trying to learn like this and this language and this and this language is is this the same thing as this i don't know yeah no it's 
And you know, the, I've said this before, the one common thing with all these languages and all these cultures is food and using food because we all need it. Everybody needs to eat every day, you know, multiple times a day. And then we're all telling stories to the, the, the food that we eat. Yeah. Food and booze are like the two things that will never, ever go out of style. Yeah, man. Hell yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. But it's, you know, it's super cool because like you think about like back to American food. If you look at other foreign cultures, like look at like Italy or France or Morocco or Japan or, you know, like look at all these different places. They have like these very specific food ways and like their cuisine is very much so defined mm-hmm. and, you know, represents them well. <clears throat> and they're super proud of it. Like we don't have that here. Which is crazy. People are like like what is what's American food to you? I don't know. Maybe 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 barbecue. Maybe maybe barbecue. But cheeseburger is you know what I mean. Like what is American food? Yeah, that's cheeseburger, cheese, steak. Cheese, cheeseburger, and pizza are like the two things that come up come up the most. French fries and stuff like that. Yeah. But like, there's just like no pride in American food, and we should have a lot of pride in it because it's like a really you know it's a kind of controversial start to our country but that doesn't change the fact of where everything came from Mm -hmm. and i think like when you're eating cornbread at your dinner table you should know how that came about and like who you owe that to Mm -hmm. you know it's like like that's that's not the only point of the dinners is to talk about shitty things is to teach people about american food and like like hey let's dig into this instead of like sticking our head in the sand and pretending like we've never done anything wrong it's like look like couple hundred years ago in Europe, they're skinning people alive and burning people at the stake. It's like, this world's been fucked up for a long time. Yeah, hell yeah. It's like, we didn't do anything. Like, I didn't, I had nothing to do with any of that. So why can't I talk about it? Sure. You know? Sure. Especially through food. Because you, you can't talk about American food without talking about those things. It's like, we're like, a, like in the beginning, we're basically like a fusion of European, Native American, Caribbean, and West African cuisine. You know, that's that's pretty much it. Yeah, yeah. I find it fascinating anyways because once you understand how the food was made and that, like the origins of food and you start looking back through history and a lot of the stuff that we really love now, whether it's like Mexican and stewed meats and all that kind of stuff, it's like they had shitty cuts of meat. They had to figure out a way to make it taste really good mm-hmm. and the, the breakdown process. When you understand what goes into it, there's a greater respect for that taco. There's a greater respect for anything. And it's obvious that as a culture right now, you know, the world is obsessed with food and the world, like everybody's taking pictures with their fucking phone and they're doing selfies with food and they're doing all that kind of shit because uh, I, there is a greater awareness now. Do you think there is? Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't like- say awareness, <laughs> but yeah, I, there definitely, there definitely is. We have a long, we have a long ways to go, Yeah, but like, it's like, like you're eating spoon bread, which is basically like, it's like a cornmeal souffle mm-hmm. for the most part. Like, you look at the souffle aspect, like that comes from Europe. You look at the cornmeal, that's a Native American technique that they taught us that basically allowed us to survive. Otherwise, we might not even be here today. <clears throat> and then, you know, African Americans created it. It's like, you know, it's like a trifecta. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's really cool. And I think it's like cool to talk about too. Hell yeah, dude. I think it's awesome. Um, and it, it makes a lot of sense, you know, judging it like... I haven't had your food yet, so like I want to come back and have your food because it no, sounds. You should, just have, you should just hang a little bit and then eat it tonight. Yeah, it sounds fucking amazing. Um, how long? What do we have for time right now? Uh, we're like thirty seconds away from an hour exactly. Okay. How are you doing for time? Are you okay? Yeah, I'm chilling, dude. Okay, great. Um, 
So I noticed, let's talk a little bit about what you do outside of the kitchen. So I noticed that you spend a lot of time doing, you're, you're on your bike all the time, right? Where does that come from? Uh, that actually, so when we were at Wolf and Chief's Clothing, my uh, partner Chris, he would like ride fixed gear bikes, like track bikes. Mm-hmm. He was like into like these NJS, which is like a, uh, like a ja- Japanese racing circuit that's like apparently like run by like the Yakuza. It's like horse racing, but with people. So like all the bikes <laughs> have to be stamped with like this NJS thing. So they're all like, like stock cars. So everybody's on the same kind of bike. <clears throat> it's like a big gambling thing, but like NJS bikes were like really popular, like timepiece NJS bikes. And he like got into that and was like riding track bikes all over the place and like wrecking and shit. And I'm like, what are you doing riding bikes without brakes and, yeah. you know, mashed around without a helmet? I was like, and bicycles are boring. And he like convinced me to get a bike and I ended up coming across a pretty cool bike on Craigslist. Just happened to be a nice bike for my first bike. And like, I like caught onto it. Like I was just like, hooked right off the bat. I was I'd been talking shit about it for a while too. <laughs> uh, cause my doctor is like, you can never skate ever again. Cause I have a bad back. So oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I stopped, had to stop skating and I had to figure out something else to do. So I started riding bikes a little bit and I rode for a couple, two or three years, just like mashing around the city and commuting and like having fun and like doing like little like alley cat races and stuff like that. And then the first year of Hatchet Hall, I signed up for Chef Cycle, which is like a children's uh, foundation, a children's hunger foundation mm-hmm. through uh, No Kid Hungry. And that's like the first time I'd ever started like riding with other people. And I like, met some chefs and they're like all serious, you know, like the tights and <laughs> all that stuff. And like started putting in like a little bit more work and like doing group rides and stuff. And then did Chef Cycle, which is like three centuries in a row. So it's like 300 miles in three days. Oh my God. <clears throat> and uh, I did it on a, track bikes i did it on a fixed year bike first year and i was like whoa that was awesome and after that i've just been like completely completely hooked over the past couple three years uh i've really gotten serious about it because i was courting my wife who's like way 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 out of my league so like <laughs> i was like i gotta get like cut up and shit so i was like i like, worked out like work lifted weights because i haven't lifted weights since high school for like a month and a half and like started riding really really hard to get like fit and stuff for her because she's super hot and badass <clears throat> so that's and that's when i really dove in like and i was like i, I maintain this shit to make sure she doesn't dump me <laughs> right. and that turned into like and even more, more obsessive. And then like the past couple of years, you know, I've kind of I developed a little bit of a reputation because I ride fixed brakeless, but I ride in the Angeles National Forest. So I like climb. Oh my God. And descend in the mountains brakeless. And this past year I did 10,000 miles and uh, a million vertical feet of climbing fixed. Oh my God. Which is cool. And then just recently, uh, actually a day, New, New, Year, New Year's Day, I got hit up by the Indo Concept team, which is like a super elite team here in Los Angeles. Uh, and they asked me to be on the team and um, just recently on the concept team. Hell yeah. So I've been like racing like every weekend. Wow. Yeah, which is pretty intense. Like we did like Rock Cobbler in uh, Bakersfield the other day. It was so gnarly. It was like ni- 95 miles and 9,500 feet of, of like technical dirt. Like, Super gnarly dirt. I'm talking about like treacherous dirt. And I rode a track bike on that. Like I was the only person out of 400 people that rode single speed in the whole, in the whole race. I was just dusted afterwards. And I was, I was angry afterwards, but, but now I love it. And you know, like riding with this guy's, it's like an honor to like 
be on a team like that. And they're also like super influential team. They're Bobby kind of create Bobby Endo, the guy that owns the company and runs the team kind of was the first to create a, uh, a team like that. They're all inner city kids from Los Angeles, uh-huh. a super diverse, super diverse team. And there's some pretty gangster, pretty very gangster writers that have come off that team and are on the team right now. So that's like a big part, big part of my life as well. Dude, hell yeah. You're just as passionate about it as you are with cooking, man. Yeah. Well, I've never had anything like that. Uh, cause all I ever did was cook and work. And like, now I have that, that other outlet, you know, it's like a hobby, but not really. How does it change your life now? Now that you have this other thing, does it make it better? Like how, how does it work? Yeah. Yeah. I think it makes it better. You gotta, you just have to have something, you have to have something else. Cause like, I'm like, manic i'm just like ah like always have to be doing something constantly so it's nice to you know have have something healthy and productive to do rather than like just working yourself to death and like drinking and partying and stuff yeah. like that yeah yeah no i'm at that same boat man like i i'm trying to find what my hobby is going to be because i need i definitely because you become so obsessed with your initial dream like i've been obsessed with directing for fucking years and mm-hmm. that's been what I do every day, I wake up and I fucking work on it every fucking day. Yeah, and so, and there's got to be a point where you like reap the benefits of putting in all that work. It's like, you know, wait till we open up our next restaurant. I will probably be writing very little. Sure. You know, it's like I can't do it. I can't do it any other way. It takes it takes that kind of commitment in the beginning. It's the work that you put into it in the beginning that allows you a little bit more freedom, you know, in the future. You, know, you got to train people properly, make sure shit's dialed and... You got to make sure that your staff knows that you're willing to work for them and do cool stuff and allow them to challenge themselves and learn all that kind of. Well, that's part of being a leader. And that comes back to what I was saying at the beginning of the show, where I, I definitely see the parallels between being a chef and being a director, because part of being a director, both of our crafts. We can't do them by ourselves. Ultimately, like I, maybe more so mine, because you can still cook in a kitchen. But to provide for a restaurant, you can't do all that by yourself. Yeah, it's like de- delegating, like tr- training and teaching, and kind of mentoring and delegating and inspiring. Like people got to drink the Kool Aid, you know, because like especially at the level that we at least think we do it, it's like everybody's very opinionated in what they do, so they have to believe in that in order to work for you as hard as they need to work for you. And what is your, how do you, how do you generally try to inspire people? Is it through your food or is it through how you act in the kitchen? Like what is your process? I think a little bit, a little bit of everything, but I think what's one thing that's really important that I've learned over the years is is delegating because it was really hard to do that at first. Like I want to do everything myself, I want it my way. And I remember telling a buddy back in the day, he's like, you want to like, write your own menu and like have other people do the work and like do the whole chef thing. I was like, Oh no, I want to be hands on with the food and I want to be able to, you know, I want control of the food and this and that. And he's like, well, don't you really have more control of the food when you're not the one necessarily preparing it, but like creating the menu. And I was like, oh, man, I don't know about that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's like once I finally recognized that it was like a big step in my career. Yeah. yeah. It's like, yeah, I'm not the best cook in the kitchen here. Like, there's better cooks than I am. Like, we have this dude, Manuel. He's like the Jesus Christ of cooking. Like, <laughs> I would never challenge him in any kind of cooking competition whatsoever. <clears throat> you got to have, you know, I think to be a chef chef or a head chef or whatever you want to call it. We don't use any titles here, really. Um, 
I don't even know what I was getting at. No, there. but the delegation is smart, man. And then you're at that point, you're taking into consideration, like you said, he's a better cook than you are. So when you're planning dishes, are you thinking about the skills that the, that your your staff? Oh has? yeah, for sure. I remember Daniel Balud saying, like, the day that your cook is a better cook than you are, you've done your job properly. And it's true. It's like you have to. You can't. It's like a, think about it like a sport. Like when you're like a cook, like on the line, you're like an athlete. Like yeah. you got like repetition and muscle memory and skill and like agility and all that kind of stuff. And like once you get to the chef, chef, chef position, it's you're more of a coach or a coordinator. You know, like it's like the overall vision. And then everybody, all, all your all stars, the ones that are really executing it. Like, yeah, like I still cook quite a bit considering, you know, how long I've been doing it and you know, how long the restaurant's been open. I, I would hope more than most chefs but you know it's there's only so many hours in the day sure it's like i try to be in there as much as i can but it's hard and and you actually like have like legit guilt over it like oh man i'm not in the kitchen enough but then you gotta like talk yourself off the ledge and be like yeah but you have other things you have to deal with also and i think you know i don't think everybody sees everybody really understands what it is that you do but it's just, it's never, it's never ending. It's like, even when I'm on my bike, I'm still thinking about work, you know, sometimes. Hmm. What is the hardest part about, what is the hardest part about your day as a chef? Is it coming up with ideas or is it just dealing with the day-to-day management aspects and stuff? Hardest thing about being a chef. Uh, probably criticism from other people. <laughs> okay. But, you know, like we definitely, we definitely put ourselves out there to be criticized. Like that's why otherwise you just have like a little neighborhood restaurant and like not, you know, just run a restaurant. Like, Hey, it's like cheers. It's like, everybody come in. We'll just like chat and stuff and be friends. Uh, but we like, I think we put ourselves in a position where we're like open for scrutiny or praise. And I think that's probably the reason that most people do it. Obviously like you got to make some money and like live your life as sure, well. Sure. But I could very easily go run a hotel kitchen, make bukus of money, or like open like a you know regular restaurant, make sure. way more money than operating a restaurant like this because it's you know labor and like we use farmers market ingredients. You know, like we work like one on one with individuals, not you know not broadliners and stuff like that. So that makes it like a little, a little bit more challenging. And mm-hmm. you know, restaurants are just difficult business and in general like the numbers don't really make much sense uh labor costs are going through the roof especially in california like cost of ingredients is going up and yeah it's it's tough but we love it Hmm. so and if you don't love it then you shouldn't do it because it's and if you don't plan on being a chef then you probably shouldn't do it either because that's that's the end goal. If you just want to cook, you can only cook for so long because it's physically demanding, like super physically demanding. It's like, you like like I said, I used to pass out like on my bed after a long day's work for an hour and like no control. Just yeah, 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 yeah. Because it, it it wrecks havoc on your body, but it also wrecks havoc on on your mind at that point too. Oh, I everything everybody told me like when I was younger that I didn't listen to is all coming to the surface now. Like really, wear good shoes and. <laughs> You know, wear like the like a back support thing and stand like this and like hold you know like all that stuff like work at a certain height like all of these things are super important like I wear like chucks and vans in the kitchen oh for God, and, and for must- yeah and for years and I like I genuinely think that's like what started stirring up my back yeah, yeah. and stuff like that 
It's huh? like it's, it's super physically demanding. I like got carpal tunnel in my left wrist from from breaking down rabbits with like this giant like five pound cleaver after after gold review he wrote about the rabbit and then everybody wanted rabbit so we had break it down like 30 rabbits a day with that stupid <laughs> cleaver Christ. i couldn't even use a knife for like seven or eight months after that or if i could like very lightly like i could cut like fish and stuff like that but i couldn't cut like a potato you know what i mean yeah so eventually your body's gonna give out on you doing that shit yeah you gotta have you gotta have that end goal hell yeah man yeah hell yeah i think we're doing some good stuff is there anything that you wanted to ask Liam? Well, I mean, you kind of just answered it with the fact that, like, this is what you wanted to do from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what it is. Is it? Because I worked in the kitchen for uh, three years. And, and in LA? Not in LA. And so, how, okay, well, there it is. Have you worked in kitchens outside of LA? Uh, just, just in Georgia. You know, I've worked in, like, like, in high school, I worked at Dylan's, which I came to find out afterwards was one of my buddies dad's dog they named it after year they owned it before the owners did when i worked there i was like a dishwasher you know like i would like i would like smoke cigarettes in the dish pit while i was working type place you know <laughs> and like i think my, my first job was at it's called up the creek it was like a fried catfish shack in georgia mm-hmm. not like a cool little catfish shack but like like a chain okay. cat like fried catfish place uh and then yeah, I just kind of worked in bars and restaurants as a kid, like a little bit. I wasn't like a big like food service person, but at least I got to see like the darker side of the food industry. And then uh, worked at Five and Ten, and ever since then I've been in California. I've actually lived in California longer than I was in the South, like as an adult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I left when I was like twenty three. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I've been 23, 23 or 24, and now I'm 35. Yeah. Actually, I'm a liar. I'm 36. Getting old, man. Yeah, I'm getting there, dude. <laughs> cool, man. Um, well, that, that actually brings up the question, then, which is, what's, like, everyone who's worked that long has horror stories about what's going on. Do you have a horror story? Horror story in the kitchen? Yeah. Like, what kind of horror story in the kitchen? Like, I mean, because I worked, I worked in front of a house, and then I was a... a Runner, food runner. So, like, I was both front and back of house, but I don't know if you have any like horror stories with a guest or somebody doing something crazy. Somebody's something blew up. <laughs> yeah, something definitely blew up. Remember how I was talking about that fire, yeah. that straighter that broke straighter? <laughs> it was the day before that we were opening, and we were like rushing to open. You know, it's, it's like, you know, you only have so much money. Yeah, in the beginning, and like sure. you gotta get the doors open sometimes before you are really ready. And uh, we were so we had the whole staff in, and we were train we were training the staff. It was their, their first day in the restaurant. <clears throat> we still had equipment being installed, so we cut off all the gas and all the flames in the kitchen. And the uh, the guy that built the place. You know, there's no fire around. So he's like, okay, cool. I'll just do this really quick because I'm in a rush. I don't want to go cut off the gas to the whole, uh, to the whole kitchen. Uh-huh. And he was, in, he was installing, uh, we actually had a gas grill when we first opened on the line, which now it's a wood fire grill. But um, he disconnected the gas to hook it up to the, to the grill and the residual heat from the, the metal oh and the French top yeah, yeah. lit the gas. So it was like, it was like a, 
It was like a flamethrower. I'm talking about like like a flamethrower out of a movie, like shooting like for me like up to that that panel up there, oh just like God. kissing the ceiling. And then you know, Strader and I are up in the uh, up in the office, and this dude that opened with his name was Poos walks up and he's like, um, "Hey guys, um, you guys, do we have a fire extinguisher?" And we're like, "What?" <laughs> and we like look at the camera. And there's like this like flame in the kitchen. <laughs> and I think that's where Strader and I really learned that our job really is just keeping our cool when shit's going down. Because yeah. if, if we leave, if we lose it, like everybody else will lose it. Like all the sprinklers went off and this old building's really old. And obviously the sprinklers hadn't gone off in a really long time, like decades long time. <laughs> so like all this, like the cold kitchen got flooded with like black water. Oh my God. And you know, we, we got lucky. Like, you know, Guillermo cut off the gas. We patched everything else. We got all the electrical out of there and like, you know, it, it, it was pretty gnarly. Straighter, yeah, we were going through all kinds of stuff because we were opening a restaurant. It's this hard in general. And the pressure is insane. Straighter's like, okay, I got to go get ginger ale. And he went, to, <laughs> he went to Costco to go get ginger ale. And they were out of ginger ale. And he just broke down in the aisle. He, he, he just sat down in the middle of the aisle and started crying because <laughs> they didn't have ginger ale. <laughs> It's, uh, dude, it's stress, man. It's like, that, like I was saying earlier, it's like I think opening a restaurant is equivalent to producing a movie, and you're trying to get a large sum of money. You're trying to get all these people on board with you, and you're trying to make all this shit line up, and that stress just fucking builds. Yeah, builds. for sure. Yeah, there's, everybody has their breaking point, and I think everybody. I think I was lucky that somebody caught me on it before I like lost my shit, you know, and I like went and took a little little vacay. But yeah, it's it's tough. There was actually we were actually supposed to do a show. It was called the restaurant. They shot like lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of footage. Uh, but it got it got kiboshed because I guess they made some changes in management and just everything got squashed. Yeah, that's how it works. <clears throat> yeah, it was it was a bummer. But it was they basically filmed us getting the keys to the restaurant when this was still the restaurant was before to al- almost to opening. But they were gonna it was basically gonna be the process from start to. F- like past opening cool. of how a restaurant really opening a restaurant really works. But like looking back on it now, I'm like very thankful that that shit got squashed because I don't know if we could have handled any more pressure. Like being on camera, like yeah, dude, when that fire went off, <laughs> getting straighter, crying in the middle of Costco. Like I actually would have loved to have seen that. <laughs> I wish I had that video. I would use it on them all the time. Like say some shit to me. I'd be like, Hey, you remember this? Ginger ale. Man. <laughs> Ginger ale. <laughs> Uh, well, dude, this has been great. I'm like, uh, I think we're hitting a good point to end the show. Um, I really appreciate you letting us come down and chat, man. It's fucking yeah, cool man. to meet you. You have a really cool. Well, you dude. guys make it super easy. It's um, nice to just have a conversation. Good, but that's what this fucking show is yeah, all about. Interviews stu- suck. Conversations are good. Yeah, well, at the end of the day, I want to meet you, man. That's kind of the reason why I was like, "Fuck it, let's go on the show," because cool. I think it'd be cool to do that. Um, at this point on the show. I generally ask my guests to give some advice to the people listening to the show. And like I said, a lot of the people listening to the show are like people that are artists and filmmakers, photographers and all that kind of stuff. And the parallels that exist between what you do and what we do is it's almost fucking identical. It's Mm -hmm. the same kind of thing. And I think the question, the question for me would be to you, I guess it gets to that point. Like, when did you realize, because your buddy told you that you were burning out, right? So like, 
a lot of people aren't a lot of people aren't ready to take a break. I know I fucking wasn't. I literally had a head injury. I literally had to crack my skull and end up in, a, in intensive care for me to actually take my first break in years to do that. How important do you think it is to take a break? How important is it to be able to walk away? And then did that change? What did that change for you after taking a break? Like how was work after doing so? I think after, I don't think that was a big enough break. Quite honestly, I think I, I went up to like SF for the Bay Area for like a couple couple days, and I was like right back at it. But I think once everybody, like the team, was where or close to where it needed to be, where I could back off a little bit, and then I like kind of started riding riding my bike and using that as kind of a, an outlet from from the restaurant. Uh, I think that's really what was important because you know like happiness goes way up, health goes up you get like that banging hot wife hey jess and like you're good to go you know so you, you gotta ha- you have to have other things that being said when you're young fuck it just work work your ass off and figure out what it is that you want to do once you get that make sure it's good and then step back a little bit and enjoy it because you earned it So hope you guys enjoyed that episode. Uh, I was super excited to be there. <laughs> if you couldn't tell, it was maybe I was kind of fanboying. Why was I fanboying at the beginning of that episode? I don't know. I don't know what it was. Uh, it's just really cool. I like to be around chefs. I like to be around people that tell stories with food. Um, and uh, Brian's a really cool guy. And you know, it's really interesting to hear how he's tackling the next stages of his career. And it's interesting to see how he stays sane. He's doing a better job at staying sane at 35 than I did. So, really cool. Really great episode. Uh, and like I said, um, you got to go check him out. If you're here in Los Angeles, go on over there and have a meal over at Hatchet Hall. Uh, it's a cool spot. Uh, it's down near the beach. So it's down in that direction. Um, west. West, west. From here. Uh, but fucking great food. Really cool spot. Um, very excited to have him on the show. And uh, hopefully I can convince him to do some uh, collaborating in the future. Which would be great. Uh, and as always, thank you guys for being here. Uh, what did you think? Did you like the show? Did you like the episode? Uh, leave us a note. Head on over to the Instagram accounts. And leave us a note. Let us know what you think. Head on over to the subreddit. And uh, let us know what you think. All the links will be below here. So there's plenty of places to go and check things out. And if you're just listening to this on um, Apple Podcasts or one of those other providers, head on over to the actual official page because on the page for this episode, we'll have links to supplemental material and photos that we took while doing the interview. And you'll be able to see what the restaurant looks like and what the vibe's like there. So really cool stuff at inlovewiththeprocess.com. And um, yeah, super happy to have you guys here. I hope you guys have been enjoying the season of the show. I have delivered what I promised, which is everything. 
<laughs> Literally videotaped an episode of the show. We've had guests on the show that are better than the ones that we had on season one. We've had actors on the show. We've now had a chef on the show. What's next? Hmm. I can tell you that I have a whole list of emails I got to get to today of some pretty cool new guests for the show. So if you like us, subscribe. And if you want us to stick around, tell your friends about it, post about it, brag about it, right? You know about the show before your friends do. Tell everybody that. I will support it. You can brag about it all day. You can be like, look, I know Mike. You don't know Mike. I know Mike. And tag me in it, and I'll support you. I'll be like, yeah, I know this motherfucker. She's been around for ages, right? We'll lie together. I'll tell you that you come here all the time. We eat food together. It'll be good. Sign it around. Tell your friends, brag, that you listen to and love with the process. Why the fuck do they not? Anyway, that's it. As always, love Dakota Electro. Uh, love to Liam for fucking hanging out. And uh, love to you guys. All right? And uh, I will see you next Tuesday. See you.